Welcome to a podcast on marketing. I'm your host, Jordan Ogren, and this is a podcast where we talk about marketing. First question, who are you and what do you do? My name is Mark Huber, and I am one of those nerds that has been fascinated with B2B marketing for the last 10 plus years. So I think I got my start as more of a generalist working at a startup agency, and I've bounced around at different startups, learning all about different functions of what make up a high performing B2B marketing org. And I've learned a lot along the way and messed up probably more than that. <laughs> Did you have an idea when you started of like, I want to land at this position and, and now it's very different for you or were you open from the beginning? No, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting question to answer. Cause if you look at my LinkedIn and I say this to people sometimes and you judge a book by its cover, you'll look and you'll see does this guy know what he wants to do in marketing? Like he's doing digital marketing and marketing operations and growth and demand gen and brand and product marketing. Like, can he not make up his mind? When in reality, that's been a very intentional route for me. Now it's not to say to go from every single one of those functions to the next, but I viewed MBAs specifically for what I wanted to do as kind of irrelevant and not something that I wanted to pursue. So what I did was I figured out a way to kind of create my own little marketing MBA to get me from entry-level marketer to the end goal, which is being a, a CMO of a B2B SaaS company by the time I'm 40. Hmm. So how did you land on that? I mean, clearly you could mm -hmm. be a genius and you thought of that yourself of like, okay, MBAs, does it work for me? I'm going to create my own and go mm -hmm. on that path. Or was there an inspiration or a seed for that idea that you used? Yeah, I think like most people, when they graduate college, I graduated, I'm going to date myself, 11 years ago at this point. I mean, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I did what my friends did, which was consulting. So I worked at Accenture Interactive for two years and got some really awesome experience my first few years out of school. But working with 280,000 of your closest friends is not really where I wanted to be. So I actually left Accenture to follow my managing director and start up a mid-market marketing agency, uh, specifically for B2B companies in Chicago. And that was where the light bulb really went on for me that, hey, this is something that I want to pursue. And I think from that point forward, I had my eyes on the end goal of being a CMO someday. And that was probably all the clarity that I had when I was you know, 24, 25 years old. I just turned 33. But I think as I've gotten more experience, I've narrowed the focus uh, on what that end goal is. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't have gotten that clarity unless I learn more and mess things up along the way. Hmm. I love that. There's this book called Range. I forget the author, but it just talks about that generalists sometimes can trump um, specialists just in the sense of the way that the world is currently working with COVID and all these things that doesn't matter how specialized. It's just so, All right. This is unplanned. Let's talk about that because I love that. I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second. Please. I think there's this stigma might be too strong of a word, but there's just this belief that if you're a generalist, that that's a bad thing. And I think people have been, you know, trained and conditioned to think that you have to specialize in something. I, at one point thought I was going to go down the marketing operations path and get Marketo certifications, you know, Salesforce trailblazer certifications, all that stuff. Thank God I didn't do that. It's not to say that people can't do that or make a career out of it, but it's not what I wanted to do. So I think mm -hmm. that was a big learning moment for me that being a generalist is okay. It, anything, it kind of rounds your perspective and you don't have to be a specialist at the end of the day. It's all about what interests you and what gets you excited. 
Hmm. Do you see a future where it rewards one or the other? Do you see like the future? Because obviously I think both have their place, but is mm -hmm. the future going in a direction that rewards one or over the other or not really? I think it really depends on the, the path that you want to pursue. I think if you want to go down a, you know, specialist path and you triple down on being a specialist in a niche area, good on you. That's something that you can make a career out of. You can make a ton of money doing that. And if you pick the right niche in the right uh, specialty area, you can make a lot of money doing so. I'm just not particularly motivated by money. So for me, it was like, what do I find stimulating from an, uh, an intellectual perspective? And mm. I think going back to my days of a, a consultant, what made consulting so much fun and, and um, why I learned so much was the variety of the, the different things that I got to work on on a project by project basis. And I think for me, I knew that I didn't want to do that type of big four consulting. But when I dug deeper, I realized that the variety is what interested me the most. And I think that's when I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in marketing, but still allow myself to get that variety by working on so many different types of projects. Hmm. No, that's a really good point. One thought that I came to mind is there's like these arguments around kind of like, should I believe in God and kind of like the working through of like, it's probably best to because if at worst, there isn't a God, then you're kind of not bad. But if there is, I would argue that it's almost like if you had to opt for one, like it just specialist seems to just constantly lead to some level of extinction, or you're just so moded, or so positioned in this place that you're unable to then adapt where someone who's a generalist, like, sure, you don't get paid maybe as much as you're talking about, but it like, you have more options always, like, no matter what, you always have more options, because you're just more general, and you have all these experiences to pull from rather than a specialist who could be a specialist in like Excel. And there's so many of these new tools coming out. It's like, Ooh, I'm out of a job kind of, I could use the underlines for it, but that's something that I think is I'm an alternate yeah. kind of invert thinker. So that's where I go. So sometimes. there's two things that you mentioned that kind of stuck out. One of them was, you know, the, the money and compensation component to it. So I think when I was first getting started in my career, I assumed that in order to make more money, you had to be a specialist. Is that true in some regards? Maybe, depending on what you're specializing in, but it's not always true. So I think the depth and breadth of the experience that I've had has gotten me to a point where like, you know, I'm not worrying about money, which is amazing, uh, but I didn't have to specialize in something uh, that, you know, would get me to that point. Now, the other thing is, and I don't even know, I don't think anyone knows how to truly use chat GPT well right now. Everyone says they know how to use it and there's, it's difficult to keep up with generative AI, but you brought up a point about risk. And if you pick the wrong thing to specialize in, or it feels right at that point in time, and there's some sort of technology advance, like we're seeing play out in front of us right now, you do run the risk of then potentially picking the wrong lane to specialize in. And then you got to figure out, well, all right, I've spent, you know, five, 10, 15 years specializing in some technology, and now it's extinct. What do I do now? So I think there are pros and cons, obviously, to, to each of those, like with anything in life. But for me, being a generalist was way more compelling. Yeah, I think of the coders, right? That's like a very clear example where it's like I have to go on Python or I have to learn something. But I would in and that's I'm gonna leeway segue into our first question because that's what this podcast is really about. It's not about marketing tactics, it's not about kind of the newest thing, because truly I believe if you 
put the bet on the underlines of things. Like no matter what happens, you'll always win because you can actually think from first principles. You can have contrarian standpoints because you're not essentially saying like, oh, it needs to be ChatGPT. You're breaking down of like, okay, what is this? Oh, it's like a super assistant. Okay, like let me think through that model versus. So, and that's kind of this whole podcast. So the first question aside from who you are that I like to Mm -hmm. get into because I love that tangent, but this question really goes many ways is like, what is the job of marketing or maybe what is the job of a marketer in a company? And that's going to change a lot depending on the company. But like, if you had to just give a definition of marketing, what's the purpose? What's the job that it's supposed to get done? So I'm going to make up a definition and I'm going to try to use words and come up with a definition that I haven't seen before because that's just how I roll. So (laughs) I think if anything, the goal of marketing is to create interest in something that you didn't know that you needed. And I think for, you know, you can use a a B2C example of, I don't know, a new pair of uh, shoes that I just bought the other day for a trip I'm taking later this summer. I didn't know that I was going to need like really good walking shoes for a Europe trip with my mom and sister. How did they get me? I started seeing some of their ads. I started looking into the product. I looked to see what reviews people had left and within probably 90 minutes, I was a new owner of some really good walking shoes from on. Now, in a B2B context, it's not nearly as transactional. So I think there's so much more that goes into it to create interest in something that you don't necessarily know that you need right out of the gate, or maybe you do know that you need and it's expensive. You've got to convince more people within your company. It's just so much more complex. So I think it's still the same like goal at the end of the day, whether it's B2C or B2B, it's just so much more difficult and time consuming in the B2B world because you're not spending your own money. You're spending your company's money and you know, it's probably not a $150 purchase. It's in the tens of thousands and maybe even six plus figure range. Hmm. So creating interest or creating, you can, you know, demand generation, right? You're, you're almost generating demand because I didn't totally know that I needed these, but through the content, through the ads, through whatever it was, you started to realize, Hey, this is something that can help me with like a Mm -hmm. job. Okay. That's interesting. Now, do you know, like what then goes into kind of, you kind of explained it for the B2C, but like Mm -hmm. what goes into gaining interest or making someone realize they need something that they never like influence or some of those words come Mm -hmm. to mind, but how do you think about that? Yeah. And I think if you were to ask that same question a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, you'd probably get a different answer. I think that's just a sign of, of things and really B2B marketing changing. But for me, really what it comes down to is people buy from people at the end of the day, they don't really buy from companies. So call them creators, call them whatever you want. They're really the faces behind, B2B software companies, and I follow them on their podcast like this, or I follow them on LinkedIn, or I go watch them at an event that they're speaking at. And you start to kind of build this relationship. Oftentimes they've never talked to you before. So it's kind of like a one-sided relationship, but you get to know that person, or you feel like you know that person and, and you trust what they have to say. So whether it's content, community events, you name it, I think the more that you can kind of build those relationships with your prospects at the end of the day, the more it warms them up for your sales team and, and gets you know new demos or whatever uh, you're selling into the door for your sales team to close. And you know just like it's been at Metadata, our sales team raves all the time about the podcast that we ran for you know a year and a half of how many people you know came to Metadata to buy Metadata by way of listening to a podcast. That's not the end goal of the podcast at the end of the day, but it gets people to kind of 
you know, build that relationship with you. Therefore, they start to become fans of your company. Hmm. And trust, as you said, is, is mm -hmm. kind of the core currency that moves them through. And that's why podcasts, that's why some of these are just more built for a level of brand affinity of building that trust to be like, yep. wow, this person likes golf or something that would have never came in like an ad or normal piece of content. Cause it's like, no, like stay business, but to your point, we're connecting with humans. So there is that trust of like, I'm going to trust that metadata is going to solve whatever that is. Or I never even knew I had this problem, but I trust Mark, I mm -hmm. trust them. So that's okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, which is why trust, I think building trust is kind of like a thing you hear a lot as like, you know, you got to build trust, build trust in that sometimes like becomes cliche because like the steps to do that. Well, no be. one tells you how to do it. There's no linear path to take to build trust. It's all about repetition. It's all about authenticity. And it's all about just playing the long game and helping people before you try to sell whatever you're selling. Like perfect example. And I've talked about this before on other podcasts in the early days of drift, when Dave Gerhardt was first making a name for himself, I knew that I liked what Dave was doing. I liked him and what he was posting. And I liked all the stuff that I had seen from drift. I was not in the market for a conversational marketing platform or whatever they called themselves at that point in time. But when the time came, I don't even know if it was at that company. It might've been my next company. The second that I needed a, a chat product for our site, who do you think was the first company mm. that I wrote the demo from? It was Drift. And that's not going to show up in an attribution dashboard. It's not going to show up in some Excel report that you share with your boss, but that's the goal of B2B marketing at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, one thing that I do think is interesting because like, I like your point about, you know, these, these companies and especially in B2B, I mean, I saw a post and I can't get it out of my head, but it was like, essentially all these B2B companies are just selling to each other. Like, um, because I start to think like, of like, okay, is the B2B SaaS space just such a microcosm that what works there, like you start to extrapolate that to elsewhere. And it's just like, cause the whole like drift example, I, mm -hmm. I touched on it podcast before, but I think there's this like survivor bias that nobody's talking about the fact that they essentially built the category of conversational marketing. And to my vantage point, mm -hmm. it fell flat, flat, like they changed it. They, they pivoted. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there's like, yeah, you need to be posting Dave, you know, like all these people had their figure and DC and all these people mm -hmm. were so cool. But it's like, at the end of the day, if they're just creating a product, if they're creating interest for something you don't really need or going to jobs to be done theory, if this isn't if I'm not firing something for this and I'm just hiring a new tool to do another job that's already get like, then it just doesn't work where, how do you think about that? How do you kind of separate this, like go create content, be a personality, all these, like what many people call them fluff with like, like the real kind of creating a competitive advantage in doing these things that maybe aren't like what most like now there are winter and some of these that are talking about some of these things that I would argue are like more, but it seems like a lot of times it's like, an example is lavender. I love all the people there, but it just mm. at times starts to feel like, is this just like, like doing like, is it, I don't know. Do you see what I'm kind of like trying to hint at? Or is it maybe just my own struggle being in and out of the B2B SaaS space? No, no, no. I think um, I'm not going to, you know, single out any company. No, no, name drop. But, and I'll do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, but a couple things in response to that. So one, people who work at B2B MarkTech companies, like it's a bubble. It's like what works in this world does not always work when you get out of B2B MarkTech and you go to, you know, another B2B vertical. It could be, you know, B2B cybersecurity or B2B financial services or something like the same tactics and like 
playbook. I hate playbooks because if it's a playbook, that means people are going to recycle it. And then it's already not a good idea anymore because mm -hmm. people are going to use it. So just, yes, it is a very real bubble and we're constantly trying to do things that haven't been done before. And that's kind of how I approach marketing. Now, the second thing that you mentioned was there are a couple companies, uh, one of which you may or may not have mentioned who I see them everywhere and I see them on LinkedIn. I see them at events. And I wonder like, what do they actually sell? Like, what's the, like, what's the product? What's the problem that they're trying to solve? Are they active on LinkedIn? Are they posting things? Are they spending a lot of dollars on, you know, creative marketing campaigns? Sure. But if I'm still wondering like what exactly it is you do, that's not really good marketing at the end of the day. It's like, yes, you're out there and you're relevant in some ways, but I don't really know what your company is trying to do that can help me in my role. So what we tried to do, it's kind of funny you mentioned the word fluff. So this would have been two summers ago. I had launched a content series when metadata really had zero brand awareness at the time called No Fluffs Given. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a really tactical thought leadership series. I hate the term thought leadership, but everybody gets it from B2B marketers who may not at that time have been the most active on LinkedIn or the most, you know, um, stage worthy B2B marketers or recognizable B2B marketers, but they truly knew their stuff. And we did a, I think it was a 10 post series sharing really, really tactical in-depth. We're talking, you know, 2,500 plus word content that showed people here's a, a particular use case and here's how to solve that use case with a framework with, mm -hmm. um, free tools. We weren't even pushing metadata. Now all the, the things that were uh, featured in that series were kind of adjacent to metadata. So we could make you, uh, you know, do that task in less time, help you spend, you know, less money doing it, but like you still didn't need our tool at the end of the day to do it. And I think that's the type of content that people truly need at the end of the day, because if they're not going to buy from you right now, then at the very minimum, just help them do something better at their own job, help them learn from you and play the long game. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. And I think that's something that I did want to mention is that you guys at Metadata, I mean, I've been when I was in the B2B space, but I've been a follower for, for quite a long time in the no fluff, the podcast you guys were doing, mm -hmm. all of those things I felt were really trying to be different in that space. And that leads to a quote I saw you kind of talked or it's a quote that people talk a lot about is like B2B is boring or B2B marketing doesn't have to be boring. And then your kind of rebuttal was, but then the same people, companies that are saying some of these things are then pushing out very boring-esque kind of templated. So like, how do you then create that no fluff and, and kind of create these creative campaigns? I know you talked about it's scary. And if it doesn't mm -hmm. feel scary, then that's a proxy that it's not far enough yep. out. But can you just walk me through how do you make your content or make what you guys are doing just not boring when everybody's saying, let's not do that, but they're not executing yeah. on it. So I love the question because I've never been asked that before. So I'll give you just a real answer. I think the first thing that you have to realize is you're probably going to piss some people off. It's not going to appeal to everyone and everyone's not going to like what you're putting out. I did not understand that or get that right out of the gate. When I first started marketing metadata, I tried to appeal more towards the masses, be everything to everyone. And we didn't get to the point that we are now without narrowing our focus and who we were trying to help at the end of the day. So by way of that, some of the people are going to critique whatever you're putting out. It might be a podcast, might be an event, might be a tactic, you name it. That usually means that you're doing something good if people are critiquing it, truthfully. <laughs> so for me at first, I was a little bent out of shape that people were not liking our marketing. I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like I'm trying so hard here. 
but that's okay at the end of the day. Now, the second thing that I'll do is I'll try to come up with, you know, a, a bunch of different ideas with our team within some guardrails that we have for a particular campaign, event, content series, you name it. And we kind of create this space where everyone can say whatever they want. There's literally not a dumb suggestion or people are going to be judged for, you know, suggesting something. We'll narrow it down to like three to five ideas. And then what we usually do is we'll go to our customer advisory board. So we've got a customer advisory board of, I think at this point, probably like 15, maybe 20 ish customers who we use as like a sounding board for new ideas that we have from a marketing perspective, changes that we're rolling out as a company, you name it. And it's almost like this little mini focus group. And what we'll do is we'll tease out some of the ideas that we have to that group who is representative of our ICP at the end of the day. There are times where I'm like, yes, we have the best idea. This is going to land so well. And I share it and they're like, this sucks. I mean, they didn't <laughs> say this sucks, but I left the call thinking like, wow, they think this sucks. And there are other times where like, love this. This is great. This is going to land really well. And sure enough, the times that we've killed the ideas that we thought were good, we didn't launch. And the times where they said, this is really good. You should double down on it are the things that most people recognize metadata for. So I think if anything, you have to test new creative ideas in a kind of a controlled environment, knowing that many of them are going to bomb. But if you can test them first before you bring them to market, you can be way more confident that what you're putting out is going to land. Hmm, that's really good. So I think the first part that you talked about is is kind of having a goal of pissing some people off. I think maybe not a goal, but that, that uh, like being okay with that. It was a goal for me, but yes. <laughs> Which is awesome because I, I heard on a different podcast that same kind of thing. I don't, it was some like bike or some like rowing device where they kind of really started taking these stands that were pissing off a lot of people, but it was bringing in more. And I'm like, that's kind of an instant thing for me to know if there's a strong brand presence is do people kind of hate it? Joe Rogan, yeah. you got lovers, you got real strong haters that he's bringing on, giving voices to people that don't deserve it, yada, yada. So I feel like that's like something that I took away. Um, and then B, like obviously bringing it to an uh, advisory board, bringing it to customers is so critical. I'm reading a book right now called Noise. Um, it's essentially all about how like we're horrible at making decisions as humans, like just as like predictions or whatever. And I think that's something that is an issue is, is so many times I've heard of people saying this is cliche at this point. I thought it was going to suck. It did amazing. I thought it would be amazing. And it sucked. And I think all that really is, is like intuition is not great at all because there's this kind of like feeling of like, I think it's right. And I think it'll do good, which like satisfies, like, I know it'll do good versus just that fact of like everything or most everything gets ran by these types of people, or we put it out and we have some testing because as good as I can get, as great as my kind of like intuitive sense can be, I'm just not going to lie to myself that I'm going to be able to guess what's going to be a home run. So those are two very powerful kind of things to have together, be okay pissing some people off and also having some cycle to actually get out of your own space to test things. That's mm -hmm. strong. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I've kind of learned by way of being here for almost three years at this point, it is don't always feel like you need to come up with these campaigns by committee. You know, somebody should be owning the campaign and you should get feedback. But if you're going to make a decision by committee, oftentimes you're going to water down whatever message it is that you're trying to communicate at the end of the day. So yes, I'll get input from others, but I don't need to make sure that every single time everyone is, you know, totally content with what's going out or else you're kind of watering it down. And then two, the barometer that we've always used in our marketing, whenever we're launching something is, would I, would this excite me if I was on the receiving end of this? Would I think this is good? If you at all hesitate and you're saying like, eh, maybe, or yeah, it's, it's pretty good. 
No, then go back to the drawing board and make sure that you're not saying, you know, pretty or some sort of modifier to that statement. Like you need to be excited about this or else your audience won't and they can see right through it. Mm, that's so good. We have this weird thing in marketing where we forget that we're consumers as well of it and we have reactions and we have, so then we can also have some. So I think that's like the both and it's like, sure, your intuition sucks. Sure. You need to do it, but you also have some level of like, nah, this is a snoozer and that's leading to like, we need to spice it up or do something. Yeah, that's really good. And obviously we always want answers, but I think it's kind of that both and like, don't trust yourself, but you do have to trust yourself a little bit with mm -hmm. that. That's awesome. So you've touched on kind of a few things that it's like, if you asked me three years ago, five years ago, I'd say something different, but what is something in the past one to two years? So maybe more recent where it was mm -hmm. like, I was on the Gary V content model of put a hundred pieces out and now I focus on quality. Like what's that thing that you've changed your mind on in regards to marketing? All right. So I'm just going to say the first thing that came to mind, it's that everyone on LinkedIn truly knows what they're talking about or is doing the things that they're saying they're doing on LinkedIn. Um, because there have been, there were times in the early days when I was trying to, to really partner with other B2B marketers and other companies who, you know, were a little bit later stage compared to metadata, or I thought, wow, like I see them everywhere. They really must know what they're talking about. And then I actually met those people and had conversations and I was like, what, like in what planet are you on right now? So I think for me, it's just taking all of that with a grain of salt. I follow a ton of people on LinkedIn. I frame my own perspective just based on what I read and what I consume, but very rarely, if ever, am I going to go read somebody's post and then just copy whatever idea or tactic they're proclaiming is the next big thing and just do it exactly like they say to do. Hmm. That's good. Hard truth, but definitely good truth. Based off that, can you give one to two tips or things that you would share with someone that, you know, they don't use Facebook or uh, LinkedIn mm -hmm. a lot, or they have, but they just haven't gone in. Like, I don't want to end up like the person you're kind of talking about who mm -hmm. maybe has gained fame or has gained some level of notoriety, but the yep. skill competence is lagging. Like how does someone use LinkedIn in an effective way? If you had like one to two to three tips for how to use it effectively? Yeah, I think a couple things. So and I'm going to give away my kind of cheat codes Secret here, but sauce. that's the whole reason. So I think for me, just pick areas that you want to learn more about. I think the beauty of what I do, I, I didn't go to school for any of this. Like I didn't really do what I'm doing now in previous positions. I learned by way of like doing the work and learning from others. And I got to that point because I go follow people on LinkedIn. I go learn, you know, who are the best marketers at you know, a specific company that I look up to and are they speaking at events? Are they posting videos on YouTube? Like there's so many things that are available out there for free that aren't always on LinkedIn and just read, listen, watch as much as you can to frame your own perspective. I think where I'm at now is kind of where I dreamed about, but never thought that I would be. If you were to ask Mark, the marketer, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. And I would be like, if I was in this spot right now, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. But I got there by soaking up as much information as I could and just trying to frame my own perspective on it. Hmm. So using it less as a publishing tool and more as a learning, engaging, mm -hmm. taking it to a, another place. To your point, it's not always on LinkedIn, but it's finding someone, oh, they wrote a book or, oh, they have a newsletter. Oh, they have something that then I can go engage uh, with yep. more. I would 100%. totally align. 
I would align with that even though my LinkedIn is an A1, but I would align that I use it as a learning <laughs> tool. Yeah. Uh, next of the final three, we're in the final three questions. I haven't done this in a bit, so a little rusty. Uh, second final mm -hmm. question is, so have you watched the movie Inception? I have a bunch and I still don't know if I understand it, but keep going. Okay. Well, that, that's fine because we're just going to be touching on the fact of if you could incept an idea. So if you could do what they're doing in the movie and go into someone, not someone's, every marketer's head. So mm -hmm. then tomorrow they wake up and the idea you implanted is their own. So they now believe B2B is human to human. They believe whatever it is. What's the idea that you would incept in every marketer's mind? That is a really tough question. I would say to kind of cheat a little bit, it's like people don't want to buy, like they can sniff out what you're selling if you're overly salesy or trying to push your product right out of the gate. So I think the idea that I would love to get into people's heads is treat LinkedIn and really most of your marketing channels as um, like educational uh, distribution channels and not promotional channels because I like most B2B marketers, I tune out whenever I see promotional stuff. If I don't know you, you have to earn the right to promote something and get me to click on it or read it. And the only way that you do that is by educating me and helping me do better at, you know, the job that I have. So the sooner that people can realize that the better off, I think all B2B marketing would be. Hmm, that's powerful. Yeah. Com commission breath is definitely pretty loud. Yeah, you can smell that. that yes, totally. <laughs> That's good. All right. Final question on this podcast. What do you do outside of marketing, outside of work that then helps Mark the marketer come back and do his job even better? Is there something that you cling to or you use regularly and drugs are fine to put on? No, but that just helps you come back <laughs> to the podcast or to your work and do it a little bit better. Yeah. So I'm going to give maybe a weird answer. I don't think about work outside of work on the weekends. I have like a firm stance of just disconnecting completely and just wow. not like on the weekends, I do not open my computer. I'm not looking at work stuff. I try to not think about stuff as best as I possibly can. Now, is there something that, you know, maybe happened in the previous week? Uh, maybe it's like managing conflict or, you know, maybe I messed up at a meeting or something. And I think about that, like, yeah, a little bit, but I really try to disconnect because I think that helps me clear my head and come back in on Mondays with like a much uh, more focus and a better perspective. It's not to say like with anything that, Hey, everyone has to go do that. Like we're all our own people and we work differently and we think differently. I've tried phases where I'm crunching, you know, books and more podcasts and trying to take courses on weekends and was my work product any better. No. And then I was actually burned out come Monday morning because I felt like I didn't have a break on the weekend. So I don't know. I'm one of those people who I, I love work and I'm motivated by doing the work Monday through Friday. And, you know, through the week, the work week, my mind is constantly racing over work stuff. But on the weekend, like I have a hard, hard stance on disconnecting and really not thinking about work. Have you always been that way? I, I learned that probably by worrying and, and working too much before. And then once I realized that, Hey, you're going to burn yourself out here and two, your work product isn't that much better. I probably learned that I would say in my maybe like late twenties. And then the best work that I've done has been the last couple of years when I've taken that hard stance. So, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe that is, uh, <laughs> 
correlation, not causation, but who knows? Yeah, no, I feel you. I'm just always interested because I've heard of many stories or examples mm -hmm. and I've had, I'm only 27, but I've had my own weather anxiety or just these kind of panic attacks or it just is awakening of like, I'm taking this too serious. It does not matter. Like I'm going to lose my life if I keep like yeah. just consuming myself so much with it. And I think your point is true. If you look at it a long term game, there's just so much and now we all could get hit by a bus tomorrow, but it's like jamming the homework in doesn't make your assignment or the test any better. So I definitely yeah. align with that thinking it's hard. Uh, oh, for, totally. for certain it's not people. easy. You kind of have to learn uh, what not to do before you learn <laughs> what to do. That's how I learned. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. And probably I'm guessing maybe some tools like D and D I use do not disturb quite frequently in certain uh, areas. I, or... I keep it on during the work week actually. Hey yeah. there. Uh, that's, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I feel that you want to go the opposite. Do not disturb work stuff almost on the weekends, yep. but no, yep. that's good, Mark. All right. This is getting to the end of it. So I just like to give the the floor to you for the three to four people listening with us still, like, what do you want to plug to? What do you want to link to uh, your LinkedIn? Obviously I'll have that in the show notes, but just share any, anywhere people can find you or learn more about you, metadata and all the stuff you share. Yeah. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm the same person that I am on podcast and LinkedIn <laughs> as I am in real life. I'm just, I'm not one to put up a, a different persona at work than I am in my personal life. So uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll probably see that. And then I think by the time that this comes out, I'm actually launching my own personal website, um, markhuber.co uh, in the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, if you're looking for any marketing advisory help, uh, I've got room for a couple of customers that I can take on uh, over the summer and the coming months. So uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for gracing the podcast. I appreciate all your wisdom. Thanks for having me. And some of the, the tough questions, you grilled me. <laughs> That's my job. And that is the end of the podcast.